Uh, so we are in Mark chapter 6. And it's uh, been great to have some of the, the teaching crew uh, just work and practice and utilize their gifts that God's giving them to, to teach and expound on the word and uh, cover some ground. I mean, we're in like halfway through chapter six and uh, there's only like 10 more chapters to go before we've gone through our first book. I mean, am I, am I rushing things? It's chapter six. So <laughs> just easy, boy. Just, let's just get through chapter six. <laughs> so uh, chapter six and we're in verse uh, six. Six just kind of sets us up uh, for what we'll be talking about today, where it says it's the latter part of verse six, then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching and he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So um, it's interesting if you were to just read Mark chapter six right now, kind of the rest of the chapter um, it goes from the story of Jesus sending out the 12 and then it does what's called what, what I've read anyways, is called a Markian sandwich. Okay. Uh, or a Markian sandwich. Here's Mark. He's writing it and he's going to sandwich, you know, a little, a little story in between the two pieces of bread. Okay. And the two pieces of bread are the disciples are being sent out by twos. And then there's this baloney in the middle not really baloney. Forgive me, Lord. I don't mean baloney. I actually mean meat. Okay. But, um, it's, uh, the story of the death of John the Baptist. And then kind of the, the last little crust on the other side is just a real quick verse about the disciples coming back from, um, this mission that they're sent, sent out on. And so, uh, he's got 12 disciples. It's something that we have read about, uh, in Mark chapter three, and it lists them off by name. And we remember that at the beginning of our book of Mark, Jesus told the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And this is really kind of where this starts for them. They're actually starting to go out and kind of, you know, um, start to do some outreach where they're, you know, they're the ones doing it. You know, Jesus isn't right there walking around with them. It's, it's your turn, guys. Go ahead. Uh, you've been following me. You've kind of been being trained up. Uh, go for it. And uh, we know that uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter three, when Jesus called these disciples to him in three thirteen and 14, uh, it says he called them to himself, number one, that he might be with them and that he might send them out to preach. And so far in the book of Mark up through chapter six, we've gotten the first part covered. They've been with Jesus and now now he's sending them out to preach. And so it's kind of an exciting thing. When we do go to Nepal and we've had some guys go some, to some other countries from the church in Prineville, um, it's a big thing when we're going out and being sent out and the whole body gets behind it and they're there waving at us, you know, or they're at the airport and it's just it's a special thing. And that's kind of what is happening out, uh, happening here, um, with Jesus as he sends them out. And um, they're, they're being sent out as missionaries. And the, the different Greek language here, apostoline, um, both, both words uh, mean apostle. When they come back uh, later on in the chapter, the word apostle is used. But it's not used in the same sense of we think of apostles yet, as in the office of apostles. It, it's used in the sense of someone being sent out 
on a missionary journey. So while they are apostles, uh, that's not exactly what's happening here. They're more actually missionaries at this point that are being uh, sent out. Uh, Jesus was very unique as a Jewish teacher calling people to himself. That was opposite of the Torah. Uh, the Jewish leaders wouldn't go and like seek out guys and then craft them and cultivate them and pour into them and equip them. That wasn't what they did. Uh, he's Jesus was all about just active engagement and getting guys to be trained up, to be sent out. It was unique to Jesus to do that. And it's also unique for Jesus as a Jewish leader um, to be sending people out in his name and in his authority. That wasn't something that um, the rabbis would do or something like that. So Jesus is kind of like busting out of the seams of just, you know, being a typical Jewish leader. He's he's something different. And people will start uh, to see this. To us, it doesn't, you know, what's the big deal? But if you live there at the time, it would be like, this guy's, this guy's breaking the mold of everything that I ever thought, you know, a religious leader would be. He sends him out two by two. In the Greek, it's dio dio, right? Dio dio, two by two. And uh, if you think about it, I don't think I've ever really thought about it this way before, but so you got 12 disciples and sending them out by two. So how many groups of, of missionaries are being sent out? You, you do the math. Is your calculator working on your phone? Right? Yeah. So six, six groups, right? They're going out uh, across Galilee, and it's just kind of cool, you know, if you were a satellite view of what was going on, these guys, boom, they're going out and they're going into the villages that Jesus has already gone into. So these are touched villages that now it's time to send, send some guys back in to follow up, see how things are going with this message of the kingdom of God. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times when we're on missionary journeys, we're going out and maybe we'll go out and we'll kind of depart from the rest of the team and maybe go always taking a couple people with us. And, uh, how would you have liked to have been on Judas Iscariot's team? Like, okay, you two, we're going to number off you two, 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 two. And, and then, you know, you're the guy that's like with the spawn of Satan, you know, and you're like, wait, um, you know, I, so maybe we could like draw straws or something, but you know, I'm with the guy that's like got his hand in the money box and no, I'm just kidding. If you know that no one really, only Jesus knew that it was Judas, but what about later when you find out that it was Judas and Jesus knew the whole time, you're like, you put me with Judas. No wonder we're getting run out of town or, you know, um, but uh, you know, I was just thinking no, that would be a, that would be a fun thing to have Jesus explain later on. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Now, Jesus would have been familiar with the Ecclesiastes passage, chapter four, verse nine. And it's wisdom, you know, two are better than one. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who's alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so there's wisdom in being sent out uh, in, in pairs or in multiples. Uh, in the Jewish law, in the Old Testament, it, it speaks of how um, a testimony that's confirmed by two witnesses, that's something that you really need to listen to. And so these guys going out, they've got each other, uh, they've got backup, they've got um, wisdom, working through situations together. And, um, but man, 
God is a God of community too. You know, if anyone thinks like that as a Christian, God saved me to just kind of be by myself and live the life of a hermit. It's not the life of a New Testament Christian. God has saved us into community. God himself is a communal God uh, existing in three persons, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. And Jesus prays out in John 17 about the fellowship that he's had with the father before the world began. And Ecclesiastes talks about how if one falls, who, who will be there to pick him up if he doesn't have his buddy. Sadly, we recently went through something with a friend in Nepal. She's uh, with um, an organization, a missions organization there. And, uh, and they were missing two of their team members. They went out on a trek and they never came back. And uh, after about a couple weeks, one was found uh, having fallen off a cliff, basically. And then after a couple other weeks, the other one was found uh, basically starved to death, dehydrated and and exposure, you know. And um, and so, man, you know, you think of these team members that went out, even as a pair, and the other tried to help. And recently we had a ministry uh, to a man in our, uh, he wasn't actually part of our church. We met him through the community and he was, um, he had had an amputated leg and an amputated foot and had just had a stroke and he lived without anybody in his life. And he had had a stroke and was laying in his apartment for three days without anybody uh, to come help him. And like the neighbor needed something and was like, man, where have you been? And, and uh, somehow got in the house and found the guy and and uh, he was in the hospital for 20 days recovering. And I was called in to come and minister to him and just began to build community in his life. And about 21 days later, he was let out and uh, into the house again. And he didn't have us on his speed dial. He spent another two days later. You know, it's like, man, we got to have each other. We've got to live in community. We've got to live where we know each other. If one falls down, man, your bro is right there to pick you up. They know where they're at. And, um, and so Jesus, you know, he knew 12. That's awesome. There were a core group of three within the disciples. And when they went out on missions, Dio Dio, right? Dio Dio, however you would say that. It says that he gave them power over unclean spirits. And so the power over darkness is given by Jesus and his sovereignty. And they were given, Matthew and Luke say, and also they had power to heal all kinds of diseases. They would tell what Jesus would tell. They would do what Jesus would do. And in verse eight, it says he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So they could take a staff. And when you look at what kind of staff this was, it's a, it's a staff that you would use a little bit for walking, but you would mostly use it to beat off wild animals when they came around you. And so I was reading the history up on like, oh, what's the big deal? A walking staff. And Jesus is like, there's some coyotes around here. You're going to need the beaten stick, right? And, uh, and also to, it would beat off, uh, any enemies that you would come across on the road, you know, and, uh, but man, ultimately though, they were to go out in absolute and utter dependency on Jesus and on what he's done and what he's been preparing for them. And, uh, you know, you can have every tr- training and equipping for ministry in the world. And at the end of the day, if you're not dependent on Jesus, it's just a flop. And I have had to learn that the hard way. And a lot of my Sunday mornings are spent first thing in the morning. I'm just down on my face on my carpet, just like pleading for God to, to give me sufficiency as a minister of the gospel for this day. You know, um, we need to recognize where our dependence, you might have a pocket full of money, you know, you might have uh, the best oratory skills in the world, whatever, but if it's not the power of the Holy spirit, 
it's nothing. And so they went out in um, dependence on the Lord, but also in dependence of the hospitality of the Galilean ministry that Jesus has already been working in. So Jesus had already kind of had already been working there. And so just kind of going out, trusting that, hey, if, if the kingdom of God's at work, then we're going to eat tonight. Just trust the Lord. If the kingdom of God's at work, we're going to have a place to sleep at night. And so uh, this was, it's an interesting call and it's, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. A lot of times when you're learning how to interpret the Bible, you're trying to determine what's a description of what happened and what's a command of how things ought to be done. And this isn't exactly how it's done every time in every missionary journey, um, but it's how Jesus wanted them to do it here. As we're getting ready to go to Nepal, we've got two and a half pages of gear that we've got to get to trek in the Himalayas. And it's like, you know, and I literally was studying this week. Okay, Lord, like I've got my nice, um, you know, duck down sleeping bag that will keep me warm. So I'm not chilly at night, you know, packing that up the mountain. I'm packing. I got this, that, and the other, and all this different gear. And it's like, maybe I should just take a stick, you know, to hit the yaks, you know, as I'm walking by them on the trail. But I love what one man said, you know, this, this light load that they had, it promoted flexibility and mobility. They were able to move. They were able to go where God would have them. And, uh, and that's an important thing in the ministry, flexibility and mobility. When I was fresh in college, um, my cousin Kyle, a good friend of mine, went uh, to Peru with some friends and they just decided to go to Peru and live out this passage right here. And so they went down. They were like, we're going to minister the gospel. We're going to take some video cameras and we're going to record how God provided for us on this trip. And uh, so I picked him up from the airport when he got back from Peru. And I'm not going to lie to you. He was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, they were hungry. They were cold. They were ready to get home. You know, he's like, man, I think that's descriptive, not prescriptive for every single mission trip. You know, he's like, we were outside a restaurant windows like. You know, just <laughs> we'll do dishes, please. Por favor. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so in, in Luke's gospel later, um, the disciples are, are allowed to take different materials on different trips. And so it was just, this was a teachable moment in their discipleship class of how God provides for them. And it's something to pray about, about how we, um, would go forward, not trusting in our supplies and our training, but rather in the one who sends us out. Um, and then look at verse 10. Also, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there, stay there till you depart from that place. And to be honest with you, when I first was studying this, I was like, duh. <laughs> I mean, hey, if you go in somewhere, stay there till you leave. You're like, <laughs> now a good time or I don't know. What do you want? You know, I really had to wrestle with this, you know, I know you guys are a lot smarter than me, but the NASB translates it. Stay there until you leave town. Okay. Uh, don't shop around for the most comfortable lodging. Okay. When you go somewhere and the Lord's leading you to a home and, and kind of in the context, it's you're going into a village that Jesus has been. People are either like, hating Jesus or they're like, come stay at our house. You know, we got all, we'll totally take care of you. Once you decide where you're going, go there, minister to that family, let that be your base, but don't, you know, spend one night there. And then you get invited to the next, you got a hot tub over here, you know, and like, you know, it's like all sorts of great, you're like, gonna, you know, it's just sour flavor in people's mouths. Like, Hey, 
just stay in one place. Let them be hospitable to you, serve you. We have experienced this in Nepal. We were up in a Tatopani one year. I think it was a year you went up in the hot springs area. And uh, there were two, we had a big team of trekkers and we had to split up between two guest houses. And they really try to equal opportunity, give everyone different, you know, give everyone business from the trekkers going through. So they split us up. Well, one guest house had a chef that was working there. He like trekked up in the mountains and now he worked there and he was a chef and he made really good food and really good French fries. Like they make good French fries. I know you can't mess up a French fry. He didn't. Okay. Over on the other side of this little trail was the one I got put in. (laughs) And you're like, this is not good stuff to eat, you know? And everyone's over there. It's amazing over here. Well, how about halfway through we switch or maybe, you know, it's like, no, Jesus said, I didn't make it up. I didn't write it. I just lived by it. Okay. So the 12 were to be grateful guests by staying put where they were received and to trust in Jesus who sent them into the mission includes trusting those he's designated to meet our needs. We didn't want to dishonor our guests and our hosts and create, um, you know, envy or anything like that. Verse 11, and whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So uh, in the Old Testament, even if you were to shake off the dust off of your feet to a, to a village, it meant that they were pagans and that they were heathens. And typically they would do that to non-Jews, non-Israeli villages or people groups. Okay. Um, and so if, if an Israeli city is rejecting the gospel, won't receive you, they've already had experienced Jesus. And if they don't want anything to do with Jesus or his messengers that he's sending out for you to, I've never really done it, but <laughs> you know, dust off your feet to them. It meant you're a bunch of heathens is what it meant. And we're out of here. And when you read the book of Acts, uh, chapter 13, in a couple different places, a place called Antioch, a place called Corinth, uh, where the book of Corinthians is written to, um, Paul would, he would do this, you know, he would just kind of, you know, and I encourage you to do this. The next time you have a falling out with someone, just be like, I'm out. (laughs) No, don't do it. Um, Unless it's the rejecting the gospel. It's like, we're done here, you know. So they went out and this is verse 12 moving on. So they've got their instructions and this is, this is a beautiful passage. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. Very short verse, very sweet verse. I have a video. I'm going to share it on the church Facebook page of Lainey, my little daughter, when she was a little three-year-old and she was wearing my glasses. Okay. And, uh, and I go, Hey, pastor Rory. And she's like, Hey, you know, and we'd been memorizing this verse. And I was like, do you have a message for the people on Facebook? And she's like, Jesus loves me. I'm like, no, what's the verse we've been memorizing? Interrupted her song. And uh, she's like, so they went out and they preached. And, she, and these are all falling off. That the people should repent, you know. And uh, it's like, amen. Right on. It's a good verse for our kids to learn. That we should be going out as missionaries. And we should be proclaiming the necessity of repentance. What was their message? Repentance of our sin. 
And so Mark chooses to focus on the response of the people referencing repentance as a proper reaction to the inbreaking power of the kingdom of God. You guys heard that word really much? Is that a Polina word that's used much? Repent, you know, uh, it might be new. It might be kind of new. Repent means to turn and go the other direction. It's a 180. It's a change of mind is what it is when you're talking about it in the Bible. And so basically what happens is as we are reading the Bible and understanding the will of the Lord for us, and we see things that are sin, we see things that we're doing wrong. We see things that, oh man, I am out of step with where Jesus wants me to be. Then we say, we confess that to the Lord. We confess, I see what you see in me as I see the Bible. And that, now I confess it. And now I, I turn the other way and I go that way. And repentance is big. It's a big call to anyone who would say they follow Jesus in the scripture. And I don't have time today because my wife said, I'm in with the kids today and we're in a tiny little room. So you're going to have to keep it short, homie. And I was like, no can do, you know, um, But I did happen to write down a ton of passages uh, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts where repent, repent, repent is called to. Repent, repent, repent. Now, there's times where, you know, we're at the LRS Fest or something and we're saying repent to a whole bunch of people that have been up all night. Like, woo! Dwight Oakum, you know, or whatever. And then there's times where, you know, we're, we're more one-on-one or we're more in a little area. There's always the call when we're with each other, like, man, I need to repent or, or I love you and, and you need to repent. We, we got to turn away if we really love Jesus. And it's not judging someone. We, our culture is big about that. You're judging me. It's like, no, I'm, we're actually called to be fruit inspectors in one another's lives. And your apples are rotten, you know, and, and my cherries are rotten, you know, and we got to help each other out. Like, man, when was the last time you changed out the produce? You know, and it's like, man, I need to do some repenting in some of these areas. Jesus preached it. First in the, in the gospels, when he said, repent and believe in the gospel. That was the, one of the first things that people were supposed to repent. They'd been doing things their way. They were super religious people. They had all the religious garbs and headdresses on and just prim and proper. And, you know, just about as religious as you could get. And Jesus is like, none of that impresses me. I see what's going on in here. You need to repent and you need to believe in the gospel. That it's through Jesus and Jesus alone and what he did on the cross uh, and what he's going to do. And it, if this is Jesus preaching it, what I'm going to do for you, believe and you'll have everlasting life. The gospels also say that, that the angels in heaven have a party when one sinner repents. It's that big of a deal. It's that big to the Lord that when one sinner turns away from the error of their way and turns to Jesus, All those angels. And when you read the book of Revelation, there's billions of angels. And they're like, whoa, there's another one. There's another one that's heard the message. And they're believing in the Bible. They're believing in what God has said. And so all weekend as I've been studying this, there's just a burden on my heart. And it's for me too, guys. Like really any preacher that's pointing at him, he's got one, two, three, however many. That's all pointing back at me. Because if there's anything in my life that I'm just giving over or I'm compromising on, I'm like, it ain't no big deal. When to the Lord, it's a big deal. And so we need to confess it to the Lord and we need to turn from it. And you know what the book of James says? If you confess it to your brother or your sister in you girl's case, uh, that there's healing in that as well. Because we've acknowledged it and where the enemy might have a foothold in our life in some little spot, we're able to be like, nope, I've given it to the Lord. And now my brother and my sister know about it so that there's no power in it anymore over me. 
and I get to walk and live in freedom. It's, it's part of the gospel. It's part of Jesus's plan for Christians. Okay. Moving right along. Cause I got a wife in the other room and I got you in this room and I don't know which is worse. You could be stuck in there. Or you could be out there. Um, and there's great too. They're kids. They're sweet. We love them. Okay. I'm digging myself in a hole. Okay. You're also good. Did I mention that? Okay. And they cast out many demons. Now, it'd be one thing if we went on one mission trip and we cast out a demon, it would be like, it was crazy, you know, but we cast out a lot of them. <laughs> Woo, it was like cockroaches up in there. You know, they cast out many demons. The kingdom of God was alive and powerful and they anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. And so they were demonstrating the powerful presence of the kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting. This is the only time in the New Testament, apart from James chapter five, where anointing people with oil is mentioned if they're sick. And it's interesting though, oil in the scripture is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so if we were to pray for someone for healing, uh, we're praying for a gift of healing that first Corinthians talks about. We desire God to give us a gift or a manifestation of the spirit in that moment. And so we anoint with oil. The elders of the church will anoint someone who's sick and, um, and pray for their healing. But interesting in the same passage, you know, what goes with that anointing with oil and praying for sickness, confessing your sins to one another and being healed. And that it's the, it's the next verse is confess your sins to one another and be healed. And so, um, so there's two healings that can take place in the ministry. It's the healing of the heart and the healing of the body. And so, by the way, if you're ill here, um, I'd love to pray for you and anoint you with oil and uh, we'd love to pray that you would be healed up, um, that God would do that, should God have that desire for you. So um, now here's our sandwich bologna, and we're going to hustle through it here. Uh, we have John the Baptist being murdered. Now, so the message of Jesus is going out with the disciples. King Herod hears of him in verse 14, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. And so uh, so Herod, he's a king. Herod basically is a title. Um, so Herod could mean any one of a number of Herods. Uh, this happens to be Herod Antipas. And he's the son of Herod the Great, who was the Herod when Jesus was born, who killed all the babies. Herod the Great had like 10 wives. And, um, and Antipas was the son of one of those wives. Um, it's been said that the Herodian family tree was as twisted as a trunk of an olive tree. And, uh, it, it was pretty twisted and I do have a giant paragraph here. Um, but I'm not going to read it to you today, but basically let's, have you heard the poem? I am my own grandpa. You guys will have to look that up. I've got it here too, but I'm not going to get into it. Yeah. Uh, there is a way through, through, um, divorce court and whatnot else that you could actually be your own grandpa. It's a, it's a hilarious poem actually. Now I need to read it to you because you're all looking at me weird. I didn't write the poem. I'm just telling you about it. Um, in a sense, the Herod family tree, it's twisted. All right. It's something that the National Enquirer would love to get a hold of. Just the other day, Lindsay and I were at Wagner's IGA. And, you know, for some reason, I just don't even look at the National Enquirer and all that anymore. It's like, I mean, we got Facebook. So, you know, we get all the news through that. And we were waiting a while and we're looking and it's like, oh, Michelle Obama. <laughs> Michelle Obama served divorce papers by Barack, you know, and we're looking at this and we just kind of start giggling like, yeah, that's where we'd hear about it, you know, and, uh, and then the, the checkout lady, the cash register lady just starts laughing because she just sees our response and how we're laughing at, you know, um, 
unless this really happened, is this a real thing? I don't know. Uh, you know, but um, this would, it would be in that day. You'd be in the checkout kind of be like, oh, Herod and Herod Herodian and his Philip, his brother's wife and this, that, and the other. And basically what happened is there was an adultery between, um, between Herod Antipas and his brother Philip's wife. And her name was Herodias. And, um, and Mark will tell us about it here. It's interesting as Mark is telling us about Jesus' disciples, he has a flashback. And so we're getting a little, you guys see those on TV? It's like a flashback where now he's living another story. That's what's going to happen to us real quick, okay? Um, so Herod hears about Jesus and, um, and he says, you know who it is? It's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Uh, his, these powers are at work in Jesus because of John the Baptist. But others would say that it's Elijah verse 15 and others would say it's a prophet or like one of the prophets. This is all throughout the scripture where, uh, you know, Jeremiah was known to have the weeping ministry and Jesus was a weeper. So they kind of connected the dots. He's something like Jeremiah or he's something powerful like Elijah. Or maybe he's like one of the other prophets. Um, and, uh, Herod's thoughts are triggered Oh no, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. He's coming to get me after I killed him. I'm in trouble. Okay, now this might be superstition or he might not really believe that it's John the Baptist. It could be some, not necessarily a reincarnation, but some sort of a spirit of John the Baptist upon Jesus. Um, but he thinks for sure, like, I'm in trouble. He's coming to get me. So look at verse 17. And here's the drama. Okay, here's the soap opera. It's the best thing you'll get on any daytime drama, and it's right here in your Bible. Here it goes. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, he arrests John the Baptist, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, who was his brother Philip's wife, for he married her. Because John said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so are you getting the drama? There was an adultery that happened. John the Baptist had a, had a ministry of like clear cut, direct preaching. And he just went up to Herod and said, you can't have your brother's wife. It's not lawful, even according to the Old Testament. And, but even Herodias, the woman was in on it and she wanted Herod Antipas. And so they decided to stay together. And now Herodias, the woman wants John the Baptist dead. Okay. This is just the best. They should make a movie out of it. That's just, I mean, the drama, right? Um, Put it on AMC, Mary's because classic movies or something. Um, and so, uh, verse 19, therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Um, you know, it's interesting to note that it wasn't, it was John the Baptist's preaching that got him in trouble with Herod. It wasn't his personality. Now, John the Baptist, we've read about his personality. Homeboy wore camel skin shirt and blouse or whatever it would have been, uh, a leather belt, and he ate bugs and honey. And he hung around and preached the gospel and offended people. That, that was his deal. But he wasn't in trouble and in prison because he had bug breath, you know, or camel skin or something like that. He was in prison because he spoke the truth in clarity and with conviction. And he, he wouldn't waver. I don't care if you're a king. I don't care if you're a peasant. I don't care what. Like, I got to love you enough to tell you the truth. And, um, and we're going to read in just a little bit that Herod appreciated that Herodias didn't appreciate it at all, wanted him dead. And one guy said Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. She's like, I want him dead. You know, 
He'll have no fury, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, moving on to verse 20. Now Herod feared John the Baptist, knowing that he was a just and holy man. And even though he was in prison, paraphrase, he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and he heard him gladly. So put him in prison, but kind of took care of him in prison and we kind of hear him out. And he was in a puzzling predicament. Like, I know this guy's holy and just. He's, he's speaking the truth about my relationship with Herodias. But man, she does not want him out free. You know, what do I do? And so as he would hear, he would be puzzled and perplexed. Um, and so uh, verse 21 says, then an opportune day came. What do you think it was an opportune for? opportune for right off with his head an opportune day came and when would it be of course on a birthday party day when herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles the high officers and the chief men of galilee it's interesting because one of these chief men of galilee would have been um, a guy named chusa who was herod's steward and Chusa's wife was a follower of Jesus in Luke chapter eight, verse three. So, so it's even apparently maybe Chusa might even have been a follower of Jesus. He's in this big wig meeting with Herod when this drama on the birthday party day unfolds. Okay. Um, and verse 22 says when Herodias's daughter herself came in and danced, Uh, By the way, her name was Salami, which, of course, if you're going to name your daughter, you name her after your favorite sandwich meat, okay? (laughs) Here comes Salami to do a great dance. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, No, but she does come in, and she dances, and she pleases Herod and those who sat with him. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Now, I've read a lot on this, and I've heard a lot on this, that that the dance that this girl did was a seductive dance. Okay. Uh, the word girl here means she's marrying age. She could be anything from 12 and up. And I'm not saying that's, don't look at me like that. I don't write this stuff. Okay. But, uh, Jairus's daughter from earlier on, she was called a girl and she was 12 years old. And typically it's considered marrying age. Okay. Um, and so she comes in, she dances in a way that pleases Herod. And then he's like, I'll give you whatever you want, you know? And I think it's been read into the text that it was a seductive dance as you, you don't get that from the text. Um, other writers say that the language speaks of her, this little girl, Salami is the best way to pronounce it. Salame, uh, that she was acting in a fawning manner with a focus on winning approval to give pleasure or satisfaction and to please and accommodate. It was an honorary inscription um, to carry out important, to carry out important obligations. So um, I, I personally, I used to think that it was something seductive and man, Herod's a big perv, you know, and all of that, but really um, you just can't get that from necessarily reading it. So he does though give this extravagant, blank check offer to her. Like that was an incredible dance that you learned at Le- Legacy Dance Academy in Prineville down by Wagner's IGA. That was amazing. What would you like? You can have anything you want. Okay. It's like learn to tame your mouth. So you're not giving promises that you can't keep. So she went and asked her mother, verse 24, what shall I ask for? Which kind of makes you think maybe she's a little younger. Like mom, what? She asked me anything, you know, candy. Should I ask for candy? Or... Okay. What should I ask? And she just knows right away the head of John the Baptist and bring it on a platter. Oh, getting a little dark in here, (laughs) you know, on a platter too. So 
Uh, notice, uh, immediately she came in with haste to the king, verse 25, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so we have this language, I want, emphasizes the impatience of Herodias wanting it done now. I want it and I want this now. And then one guy noticed that the way she phrases it is full of suspense where she says, I want, okay, uh uh-huh, at once, okay, we'll do it at once, the head of John the Baptist, oh goodness, and I want it on a platter, whoa, no, you know, I mean, it just got really grisly and gross, she's totally the Debbie Downer of the party, right there, party ends, in fact, I remember in Spanish class learning the phrase, agua fiesta, which means party pooper, that was her, she's little Debbie Downer Salome, okay, and uh, agua fiesta, okay, Party's over, okay? Now imagine being King Herod. Oh, it was a wonderful dance, and come on, little girl. Oh, what do you want? You want the... Okay, uh uh-huh. Oh, no. Like, we're going to have a decapitation here. This is not going to be good. And it even says in verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry. Oh, this is a bummer. But I did make a promise. It says because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. So he's at this point, he's just too proud and he fears men and the opinions of men more than just common sense. Like I think we would all understand like <laughs> kids these days, huh? Too many video games. Like they're just wanting to kill people like crazy. Like, no, little girl, we don't do that, you know. But how do you get out of that one? I wonder, you know, no means no. Okay, you just tell her no. But But he did it immediately. Verse 27, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison. He brought his head in on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And so just the fact, you know, multiple times it's referenced, you know, the beheading. And I don't know about you, but to me, ever since I was a child, a beheading is something that's, You know, it's something that's, it's very grisly. It's, it's one of the worst ways to go in my humble opinion, you know, um, throw that head on a platter that, that just adds a level of, Oh man, this, this is not good. This is not, you know, um, there's darkness there. Right. And, um, and, uh, it was said in one writer, the one whom Jesus would call the greatest man born of a woman in Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man ever born to a woman is sacrificed to a cocktail wager. How sad for John the Baptist. And yet uh, it's a lesson to us, I believe, that the sandwich is this way. And, and let's read the, the final piece of bread on the sandwich, okay? Where we see the apostles return. Then the apostles, or we missed the one about the disciples. Look at verse 29. Then the disciples heard of it. They came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb kind of makes us think of Joseph of Arimathea, right? Uh, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they'd done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. And so in, in my studying and looking at this, many of the sources and the books that I read said, man, this sandwich is a good lesson for us. Because as we are called to go out as representatives of the kingdom of God in Polina and Prineville and 
all throughout the region and the globe. We've got to understand that whether we're received into a home or whether we're, you know, run out of a village, uh, no matter what, there's persecution is going to happen. It's a very real part of being a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus would say, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Let him get ready to die for me. And, and John the Baptist in the midst of this missionary story is an example of that. Just speaking clearly and truly and not fearing men and saying how it is, um, it could very well cost you your life or could put you in prison. And then as the disciples come back, they tell the story and it sets up for the next week. Um, and uh, that is the feeding of the 5,000 that takes place. So if you guys want to set your things aside and...